HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host here on Heritage Radio Network. And today we have an exciting show. We have the well-known, notable, award-winning cookbook author, Deborah Madison, with us later today. And um, we are sponsored today by something that is very exciting. I was reading the card on that, so I lost my train here for a minute. Uh, A new museum of food and drink is, is trying to get started, something that's been in the works off and on over the years, and now Dave Arnold has uh, taken it under his wing to try to get this off the ground, the Museum of Food and Drink, something that is really, uh, I think, something that would, would be a real added bonus to those of us particularly who follow the history of food and, and drink. And there's going to be a fundraiser for those of you in the New York area are planning to be in New York at the end of the month. Um, it's a Get the Ball Rolling fundraiser, and it's going to be March 27th at 1 p.m. at Del Posto Restaurant. And what a lineup of chefs who have, have volunteered their their time and efforts. We've got Wiley Dufresne, of course, Mark Ladner from Del Posto, Cesare Casella, Niels Noren, David Chang, Brooks Headley, Carlo Miracci from our own Roberta's Restaurant here where we broadcast from, Christina Tosi, and if you like cocktails, we have got cocktails for you. Audrey Saunders, Eben Clem, Damon Bolte, Jamie Gordon, Thomas Woe, and Kenta Goto, all mixing up fabulous drinks. And you might even hit upon a new drink that uh, you'll be the first to try. Anyway, the tickets are available for this. Our Patrick Martins from Heritage Foods is, is um, helping sponsor this as well. And uh, it should be a fabulous event, and we hope that we can raise a lot of money for the Museum of Food and Drink. Again, that's March 27th at 1 p.m. at Del Posto. And if you go to um, M-O-F, as in Frank A-D, Museum of Food and Drink, MOFAD, MOFAD MOFAD.org, you can find out all about it. Well, today, um, we've had a, a busy week, and I think it, we need to take a break and talk about things today that have been going on. The busy week being Carnivale. I don't know if any of you celebrated Carnivale, but what 
so many different countries and so many different cities in the U.S. go all out and celebrate this, especially on Mardi Gras, Carnivale now, meaning, oh, well, loosely translated means away with meat. And then, of course, Mardi Gras or Shrove Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, is the day that People throughout history, well, what they did was they consumed all their perishable forbidden items because what follows is Ash Wednesday, um, and that begins Lent, the Lenten season where um, we abstain from eating a lot or did for many years abstain from eating a lot of our favorites. Um, Mardi Gras, of course, being the huge festival that's grown into wonderful celebrations everywhere and lots of food and lots of drink. And it had a purpose in history. Lent, as it turns out, is one of the oldest observations of the Christian calendar. And it's like other Christian holy days and other religious holy days. Things have evolved over time. and it, But always it was a time of fasting, a time of, of abstaining from certain favorite things for self-examination and penitence. And demonstrated by self-denial, as I said, of, of giving up something all in preparation for Easter. But giving up meat was the big thing. It was There was no meat or no eggs, no cheese for 40 days before Easter. Um, we're not quite sure when, historians really aren't sure when the practice of fasting and abstaining from animal foods for 40 days before Easter really began. But according to the Catholic Education Resource Center, the rules of fasting varied, but we know that in the late 500s, um, Pope St. Gregory wrote to St. Augustine of Canterbury, and he issued the following rule, we abstain from flesh, meat, and from all things that come from flesh, as milk, cheese, and eggs. That was a pretty hefty rule to, um, to issue for 40 days, as they did, but uh, it was practiced and still is in many religious, more religious countries in Eastern Orthodox churches. But certainly by the 800s, and um, it was loosened a bit, and Christians were actually, they were only allowed one meal a day after 3 p.m., but that was loosened a lot. And then by the 1400s, it was loosened even more where they could have a meal by noon. And eventually various foods were added, like fish, uh, and eggs and cheese were, were back in on the allowed menu. And it wasn't until 1966, really, that the Roman Catholic Church lifted the restrictions on the Lenten period, although everyone was still encouraged to give up something for, for Lent beginning on Ash Wednesday. And it's still a popular um, uh, practice with, I guess, with practicing um, Catholics to give something up for Lent, and it also becomes a time to to maybe get healthier and abstain from things that you feel aren't a good practice. Uh, for others, it becomes kind of like those New Year's resolutions. They slip down after time. But abstaining from meat has long been um, a practice, and even now, it was, of course, philosophical, um, ethical, religious, and for some people, it was just a matter of health. And a new program has started up a couple of years ago and called Meatless Mondays. And the Meatless Monday campaign, um, it's in conjunction with the John Hopkins um, School of Public Health. And 
It's a national effort aimed at preventing heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and cancer, to, and also to reduce our carbon footprint. And it really encourages people to start the week with healthy and environmental-friendly meat-free alternatives. Of course, this network is sponsored by a lot of meat meat-centric companies, and uh, our own Patrick Martins, of course, uh, started the Heritage Foods USA, um, and so that when people do eat meat on other days, it is strongly recommended to eat grass-fed, hormone-free, locally-raised options whenever possible. Um, but a lot of people have, have joined on this bandwagon of Meatless Mondays, and especially now in the fight um, against child obesity. It's sort of a good practice to broaden our horizons of other foods available. And hopefully it's not just another pizza day on that meatless Monday, but that people have made good options for this. And, of course, the vegetarian vegetarianism is something that's been around for, for millennia, um, starting in, in Vedic India within Hindu religions. Some people are vegetarians all the time, and some just, as I said, just as abstaining on occasional days of the week. And a lot of people think of eating vegetarian as having as, as having some weird mystic connotations to it or having to eat unusual foods like tempeh or tofu, and which are actually very good if they're used properly, or exotic grains, really because they're not familiar with these foods. And they're all, all these foods are delicious when you know how to cook them. Um, but there's also a whole array of other wonderful vegetable dishes that are truly familiar and satisfying. And today, I thought there was no better person to consult about Meatless Mondays or vegetarian eating, in that matter, than the one who demyst- demystified vegetarian cooking for us. And uh, <laughs> keeping with the religious theme, she's the author of what's often referred to as the Bible vegetarian cooking. It is to our today. Today's guest is Deborah Madison, the author of Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you so much. <laughs> I thought I'd bring that little religious theme yeah. in there. <laughs> I, I heard that creeping. <laughs> yeah. uh, Deborah's joining us today from uh, from Santa Fe. You're just outside of I mean, from just outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, about correct? twenty miles. Twenty mm-hmm. miles outside of Santa Fe. Um, and I'm so glad you did. It's not. And I have to say that vegetarian cooking for everyone is not your only book. Deborah is the author of many books and articles: The Greens Cookbook, The Savory Way, Local Flavors, uh, What We Eat When We Eat Alone, and most recently, Seasonal Fruit Desserts. So, what the the thing that interested me about going back to vegetarian cooking for everyone is that this is your tenth anniversary of the of the publishing of that book, and it's there's a new anniversary edition out. Is it correct? Well, it's, it's actually it's, that was a couple of years ago, okay. but um, but yes, it's it's correct. It's ten plus a little. <laughs> yeah, it suddenly it came up in a lot of um, resources I was reading about. I get maybe in conne- conjunction with this Meatless Monday program. Uh-huh. Um, but that is such. I remember when the book first came out, and I I hope that too many changes weren't made because I have the old copy. No, no, yeah, no changes were made. But I actually do hope to 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 bring it more up to date because so many other changes have taken place in our whole food culture. Right, right. They're, they're foods that that we eat now that we didn't eat then. And, and, of course, it was true when I wrote the book that there were foods 
at that time that we hadn't eaten previously or we weren't really familiar with. So I think, um, you know, we, we always have to keep abreast of the times. Well, um, now I know that your, your interest in cooking really was, um, grew to a real passion when you started cooking at Chez Panisse, and then you were the founding chef of Green's Restaurant. So you've really been involved in fresh, wholesome foods, from the I beginning. For a, yeah, for a long time. And, and I grew up in California. My, we always had a fabulous garden. And, um, and, of course, things grow beautifully there, not like New Mexico. So, yes, it's been a part of my life for a long time. Well, and, and I know that you said you had a mission of connecting people to the food they eat and its source and its history. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and some of the work that you've done? Well, it's. Um, I think that really has been my my underlying passion is is developing connectivity to food, um, where it comes from, what it is, what its names are, what we call things, um, because. I mean, the short answer is, is that life is just a lot more rich and grounded and interesting when we're connected to the things that are intimate in our lives, and food is certainly one of them. I, I suspect that, that people who are really connected to fibers, you know, and their, <laughs> their clothes have, have a similar, you know, passion and feeling, but we all eat, and, um, you know, food is on our table, and it's coming from so far away and with so many effects on cultures that, that we don't even know of. Um, I, I, you know, I think we, it's quite possible to do great harm just out of ignorance. You know, we don't know the conditions you know, that people live under who are producing food, who are in other countries, mm-hmm. or the effect of that food production on their environment, their use of water, um, the, the use of their soil. Uh, there's just a lot we don't know about. We also don't know about it here, too. Right. But um, it, it, it seems that as we have become more connected to those who produce our food, um, we're happier about it. We enjoy it more, you know. It's it's always very exciting to say, oh, this was grown by so-and-so, or I grew this in my garden, or I got it at the farmer's market. Well, that's what, but that's when you really appreciate it, when you grow it in your own garden. That's when yeah, that's the best. That's yeah. absolutely the best thing. But, um, but regardless where the connection comes from, I think when we do have connection, um, it, it just fills our life in a, in a very different way, and it makes, it, it makes us more aware of the world around us. If you are eating from your farmer's market, for example, or eating pretty locally, suddenly your landscape comes into focus in a way it might never have before. Mm-hmm. Oh, there are farms there. Oh, that <laughs> farm's not there anymore. Um, oh, water issues, because I live in the desert suddenly become, there are issues, they're not just the issues for the farmers living up north, you know, um, it, it connects us to uh, not only our food, but connecting to our food connects us to our world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you I see that you are, um, or have been on the board of the Seed Savers Exchange, and that you're and involved with Slow Food, um, and I'm, I'm thinking that so many, and there's so many other movements that have taken um, hold long since you've, uh, well, they were around when you first um, published the, the Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, but I can see that even really taken hold even more, you know, the locavore movement and and the organic movement, how that has just blossomed over the, the past 10 years. I mean, okay. that certainly <laughs> has an effect on things. It has. 
Yes, and, and actually I, I have to say that when I wrote the Greens Cookbook, even though that was a farm-driven menu restaurant, which was really unusual in the 70s, I never used words like local and sustainable. Because it all was, right? It wasn't, our, it wasn't in our vocabulary. Right. And, and even in vegetarian cooking for everyone, it, it's there to some extent, but not in the way it was in local flavors, which came out some time later. Because these weren't words that we were really using, right. <laughs> you know, um, in the way we do now and until relatively recently. That's true. That's very true. Um, and, and now they're... Um, in a lot of the food circles, there is some debate as to whether we should even keep using those foods because people should, I mean those words, because people should just have an awareness of, as you said, where their food comes from. And um, I think that it's it's interesting to see how the world has changed in, with the food. Um, what do you think are some of the basic misconceptions or difficulties that people have with vegetarian cooking? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Let me count the ways. Okay. <laughs> I, well, I think that they're, they're kind of nervous about, um, well, you mentioned eating foods that are unfamiliar mm-hmm. and strange and perhaps not appealing, which certainly doesn't have to be the case. Um, I think this is less than... less true than it used to be, but I think that people who are nervous about having a vegetarian meal maybe imagine a plate with nothing in the center of it and, you know, a few things around the outside. That's right. We're so so meat-centric, you know, in our thinking, right? Right, that the meat has vanished, and and we actually don't have a lot of foods um, that we generally put around it, so people might think that there's not going to be anything to eat. Um, or that they won't be full, or they won't get all the nutrition they need. Um, you know, I think that those are the kinds of common mm-hmm. um, misperceptions around having a meatless meal. I, I love the Meatless Monday idea because it, it takes vegetarian food um, away so much from being vegetarian lifestyle, this is all I can do and I can't do that kind of attitude to, oh, yeah, well, sure, let's do it on Monday. And, and, you know, there are lots of people who go to restaurants and maybe take the vegetarian option simply because it looks more interesting. (laughs) Well, and they don't, and people don't think about it too when they have pizza for dinner that if they're not a, if you're not a vegan, if you're not a, you know, lacto ovo, Uh but, um, having pizza for dinner or pasta, you know, a pasta that just doesn't contain any meat or wonderful, you know, soups and, and lasagnas and things that they don't realize that they're eating a, a meatless day that day anyway. Yeah, that's true. There are lots of foods. There are actually quite a few foods we we do eat that um, naturally lend themselves to being vegetarian, and we don't think one way or another about it. That's right. That's right. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk specifically about some of the foods and and about some of the things that you've wonderfully introduced through your book. Okay. Okay. Stop this little duck dog and this foolish man. 
This is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Take a swig of Beer Sessions Radio every Tuesday at 5 p.m. with Jimmy Carboni, the owner of Jimmy's Number 43, and Ray Dieter, owner of DBA. Beer-loving raconteurs offer toasts, share craft beer news, and swap anecdotes about their lives on the front lines of the craft beer movement. Again, Beer Sessions Radio, every Tuesday at 5 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. We are back with our guest, Deborah Madison, and talking about vegetarian cooking. And Deborah, I think it was Lynn Rosetto Casper, referred to you as the Julia Child of vegetarian cooking. Now, that's got to make you feel pretty good. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I have to say that, um, you know, it's interesting that... You, that and, and I keep referring to the, the book that you wrote so long ago that really put you on, um, can I say it, put you on the map? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, it did. Um, I mean, when people think of a great vegetarian cookbook and a great vegetarian cook, they think Deborah Madison. And I think much due to that book, it is, first of all, it's a wonderfully large book that contains, what, over 1,400 recipes, I think? It's, yeah. And, which is great. But, but you know what's, in reading down the list of chapters... I mean, no one gets that sense. We were talking about demystifying vegetarianism. You don't get that sense of that it's anything different because you've got the chapters, the sandwiches, salads, soups, stews, casseroles, pasta. I mean, on and on. It sounds just like any other cookbook, as well, well it should. I right? feel really strongly about that. I, I don't really, I've never liked the vegetarian label because I felt it was a, a label that separated people. You know, and it made people nervous, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it didn't have to be that way. Um, and that's why I called it vegetarian cooking for everyone. Right. Because, you know, you can, hey, you can have a lamb chop, you can have a steak, you can, I mean, I eat meat too, you know, but I was really wanting to focus on what are some of the possibilities that plant foods give us. Yeah. And there's a lot, obviously. And I think, well, and it just, I think today, um, it, it just, it has, it resonates even even more strongly, I think, with so many people today. Um, you stress, as in any cooking, in the very beginning, you stress the foundations of flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about what you mean by by this. Well, I have to I have to remind myself what okay. I mean. By it. <laughs> I'll help you. There. Um, foundations of flavor uh, were really about the seasonings in the kitchen mm-hmm. and. Um, Seasonings are so important, um, whether they come from herbs or from the fats you use or, you know, basic ingredients, oils, and so forth, because they really do influence um, the direction that a dish or, or, in particular, a vegetable is going to go in. Um, and they, be, they become very, I think, very valuable um, ingredients uh, in the kitchen, um, or it's you know, when you understand the power of uh, a really fragrant oil, like a roasted peanut oil, or, um, you know, a, a really rich, big olive oil, you, you can begin to think, oh, well, let's see, I'm, I'm cooking this tonight. <laughs> and if I use the peanut oil, that spinach is going to be very, very different, and it's probably going to be great with ginger and, you know, and some roasted peanuts, and maybe I'll use tofu with that. And, and that's a different kind of dish that you're going to end up if you started, say, with olive oil. Uh-huh. 
Uh, Herbs especially, um, you know, I always think of them as the lively border collies of the the plant world because, I mean, herbs have the power to drive um, a vegetable into so many different directions. Corn with dill is different from corn with basil, corn with cumin, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, So you have many possibilities open to you without really expending a huge amount of energy to get them. That's true. That's right. And actually, as one who goes to a restaurant and orders my my course by what side dishes are served. Yeah, <laughs> I'm one of those. I too. always <laughs> pay attention to those things. If if the vegetarian offer isn't you know offering isn't to my liking, but I always mm-hmm. choose it because of the side dishes and how they're prepared and what's with them and the flavors yeah. and yeah, it just lends a whole different um, a different depth. Um, Yeah, and a lot of things can influence dishes that are very cheap and very um, something around the house. You know, breadcrumbs. Are they fresh breadcrumbs? Did you dry them? Um, Crisp and some butter, crisp and olive oil. Um, Maybe make a piccata with breadcrumbs and almonds and garlic um, to thicken the soup. I mean, Mm. you know, here's, here's something that that we have, and um, oh my gosh, there's all these things you can you can do with them that have great possibilities, right. and it's very simple. You know, yeah. These are your ingredients, your building blocks. Well, when you were talking about um, you know the composing a vegetarian meal, not having that you know that something centered around the you know the, the meat dish as we do, um, what what's important to know for people when they're composing a vegetarian meal in terms of balance and and nutrition? Well, you know, I haven't really gotten into nutrition a whole lot because I don't feel um, it all has to be resolved in a meal. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that your nutrition um, comes over the course of a day or a course of a, a week, week or, mm-hmm. or a lifetime for that matter. <laughs> you know, so, you know, when you get into analyzing, oh, well, that salad is so many, so many percentages of the calories come from the dressing. I mean, I just can't go there. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not interesting and it's not useful. Um, I do think, um, you know, the same considerations that apply to any food apply to a vegetarian meal. Color, to me, is really important, and there's so many gorgeous colors in vegetables, it's really not problematic, but it does help to think about it. Um, balances of texture um, are, are important. Um, if you're having a creamy kind of gratin of potatoes and celery root and a little Gruyere cheese, you might want to serve that with something that's got some contrast, a fresh arugula salad, something mm-hmm. that has some bite and it's also, you know, cr- more crisp and lively um, so that not everything is the same weight, mm-hmm. you know. Um, when I first started doing vegetarian cooking at Greens, it was a different era, and people were really nervous about it. And so I always felt that that the cent- that what was important was to have something to be the center of the plate, something that your eye would focus on. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, that's for dinner. You know, we don't. It's hard to say what's for dinner. Broccoli. We <laughs> say what's right. for dinner. You know, it's meat or fish or it's salmon or lamb or something. But it, somehow it doesn't work so much with vegetables. It becomes more. Well, what's for dish? Oh, it's um, a crepe folded around um, a chard cooked with cilantro and onions and chili, or mm. it's you know, or it's um, a bowl of black bean chili. I mean, with uh-huh. condiments on it. Um, but a lot of I you know I don't cook the way. I don't cook at home the way I used to cook in the restaurant, which was to make more elaborate 
dishes that really had form and shape and color, things that were folded or stacked, um, sauce and so forth, because that really, for people, especially for men who got dragged there by their wives, um, it really made them feel like, oh, it wasn't a plate minus the meat, it was a plate full of something else. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. Yes, yes. Um, but it, and you just mentioned a couple of wonderful dishes that made me hungry. All right, it's <laughs> lunchtime here in the East. Um, what are there any ethnic cuisines which seem to lend themselves more naturally to vegetarianism? Well, I know that I'm incredibly drawn to um, the foods of the Middle East and the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. and, and I think that there's so many terrific um, possibilities there with greens, with vegetables, with legumes, and so forth, because, um, well, it's a Mediterranean climate, yeah. <laughs> for one, you know, and, and things really, plants grow so well, and, and, you know, and for so much of the year, it's very much like California, it's easy to, it's much easier to be finding truly fresh, local, out-of-your-garden kinds of vegetables in a climate that's hospitable to it than not. But um, and, the, and the flavors work. There are flavors I think we're comfortable with. Um, garlic, olive oil, you know, polenta, vegetables of all kinds, artichokes. Um, we, we tend to know these flavors better than I think a lot of us know Asian flavors. Mm-hmm, that's true. Yeah. I happen to love Japanese food, but if I, if I decide that, oh, this is the healthiest food and I love it, after about a week or so, I've just got to have some polenta and gorgonzola, you know, <laughs> if, you know, or something else. I mean, not necessarily Italian food. Yeah. Well, well, I was thinking, Italian, having done my culinary training in Italy, I, I immediately think of Italian food. And of course, you know, pizzas and pastas and, um, and risottos, I mean, all those dishes are wonderful, and they, uh, they lend themselves to vegetarian meals beautiful well and and also in italy you have the wonderful vegetable stews too mm-hmm. and gratins yes. and formatas and you know um and and beautiful tarts you know the torta de erbe filled with um in fact a wonderful lentil lenten dish <laughs> filled with the first greens of spring right. and and um some ricotta cheese uh yeah there's there's just many many possibilities there yeah. Um, well, you do include um, recipes for and instructions for the use of a lot of the soy products, um, tempeh and tofu, and and I mean these are a very important part of a of a strict vegetarian's diet. I mean it does give them good you know a good replacement for um, necessary protein, right? Well, I'm not so sure about that anymore. Yeah. I, I used to, to feel more strongly about that. Um, I, I enjoy tofu, and we probably have it once a week or a little less often than that, partly because I really like its mm-hmm. texture. And, and it, but I don't like the texture that everyone else likes. I like it really soft tofu that's been oh, braised or steamed, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and as fresh as possible. Um, I, I, I do think in terms of nutrition, you know, I, I feel concerned that the quality of vegetables and so forth that we eat are are is perhaps not so high as it used to be, and um, our markets are full of food that looks really fresh, but it's you know it has traveled, it has been stored. Um, there's a real difference between you know food that's grown in good soil and consumed 
you know, relatively quickly, then, then food, even if it's been organically grown, has been, you know, grown in depleted soil, shipped, stored, and, and right. all of that. And, right. and I know that these, hey, it's enough just to eat a vegetable, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that this is, this is an issue that really um, concerns me. Well, that's, and, then, yeah. and that's a, a, a very worthwhile um, issue and mission. Is there a, some favorite dish that you are drawn to or find yourself cooking a lot right now in this season? You know, I, I do go through phases. <laughs> and I have to say, because because I eat a lot of vegetarian food, and I not all the time, but most of the time, I'm very happy with very little. I don't do a lot to food. so But I get crushes on things. So my crushes right now <laughs> are sweet potatoes, which I like to steam and then grill and serve with a white miso sauce. Ooh, nice. And, um, and then I love that white miso sauce. So I did it one night with some buckwheat pasta and, and um, some seared scallops. And some red bok choy, which was a beautiful dish. So you're on a um, white miso kick. Is that what? Yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> but the other thing I'm on is I'm also on sort of a shredded salad kick. I love radicchio salads, mm-hmm. but thinly, thinly shredded. Mm-hmm. Collard greens I cooked last night shredded and then in a coconut butter. Oh, nice. And I use that as a garnish for a carrot soup that was made with lots of ginger and cumin and coconut. And, and it was just an absolutely beautiful Okay, okay, you've got me yeah. sold. I'm hungry. <laughs> it's time for lunch. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> that was wonderful, and 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 that is just a a brief example, I think, of of all the wonderful dishes that you've introduced people through to through your books, and uh, and I thank you because it it really helped me understand a lot more about what I can do with more vegetables, and I. Hope people will consider the meatless Mondays. I think it's a healthy alternative. But for those that you certainly aren't asking people to give up meat altogether because meat's well, good Well, it does too. get pe- people comfortable. You yeah. know, it, it yeah. gives them a whole new dimension. I think it's um, a great opportunity to have a little more fun and branch yeah. out with your food. Right, or reduce the amount of meat you eat. If you're going to eat meat, eat good meat. You know, buy better meat and eat just a little less of it, you know? Yeah. And I think that's important, too. It is important, for which we're very grateful to Heritage Meat Foods, because <laughs> <Right. laughs> those are wonderful meats. Right, right. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank it was, you it's so much. really good, and, uh, and I hope everyone will join us again, and we'll check into MeatlessMondays.com or um, DebraMadison.com, and uh, don't forget to check out the Museum of Food and Drink, MoFad.org. This has been Linda Palaccio on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. 
The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Oberhofer, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. following is a public service announcement from Heritage Foods USA. In late March, Dan, Andrea, Patrick, and the Heritage team are traveling to the coldest reaches of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont to help the Cantor family tap sugar maple trees. Then the maple sap will flow down to the sugar house where it is boiled gently over a wood fire just as it has been for generations. Just a few days later, this grade A amber syrup will be poured into the beautiful glass jugs and sent to you for pancakes, waffles, desserts, glazing hams, or just drinking by the spoonful. There's only a limited supply, so order today. Each one-liter bottle is $45, including delivery. Delivery will be at the end of March, and we will notify you of the exact shipping date. Each shipment will include a CD explaining the whole process. You can also follow us on YouTube while we work and bottle. In the meantime, you can head over to the Heritage Radio Network archives and listen to Linda Palaccio talk about maple syrup on her show, A Taste of the Past, Episode 12. For more information, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join wine impresarios Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco as they dish out on the latest industry news with winemakers and tastemakers on Heritage Radio Network's revamped wine show, Unfiltered. Aaron Fitzpatrick, one of the first hosts on HRN with her program at the root of it, amps up the volume and unfiltered content with co-host Brian DeMarco in this 2011 Redux. True to the original format, Aaron and Brian will keep you abreast of current happenings and break down the news and global events, distilling complex into anecdotal stories that inspire. From media and political events to hailstorms in Argentina, no topic is out of bounds. Tune in every week to hear them chat up the industry's biggest personalities and host on-air tastings with visiting vintners and the country's hottest sommeliers. Whether you're an expert or an enthusiast, Unfiltered demystifies wine and lets you know what it really takes to get a bottle from the vineyard to your neighborhood wine shop. Unfiltered broadcasts live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network.